Hi, book lovers. This is Ellen Hildebrand, best-selling author of 30 books, including The Hotel Nantucket and The Perfect Couple. And this is Tim Ehrenberg, creator of Tim Talks Books. And you're listening to Books, Beach and Beyond, presented by N Magazine. We'll be diving into the wonderful world of books and featuring special guests from best-selling and award-winning writers, publishing industry insiders, agents and editors, book influencers, and more. There's nothing Ellen and I love more than talking about books. And our favorite question to ask each other is, what are you reading? But we'll go even further here on the show, exploring the craft of writing, the process of book publishing, and that wonderful connection a reader has with a favorite book. But before we head into our episode, we want to take this opportunity to thank our incredible premier sponsors, Nantucket Book Partners, Marine Home Center, the Nantucket Hotel, Cartelina, and Nantucket Looms. Without their generous support, we wouldn't be able to bring you these fascinating conversations with some of the most dynamic leaders from the book world. So thank you. And now on to the show. Hi, Ellen. Hi, Tim. You've been in this business for a long time, over 20 years. And when we recorded the promo for this podcast, you promised me some literary gossip. So will you tell me something that maybe readers don't know about the book business? Well, I'm trying to, I was trying to think about like what would be juicy gossip. And I decided I can't really do sex or drugs. Let's, let's talk about money. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how writers are paid. And what many people probably don't know is that the majority of writers all make the same amount of money, which is 12 to 15% of the cover price of a book. So for example, my novel, The Five Star Weekend, sold for $29. So I made about $4.30 a book. Okay. The royalty schedule on an electronic book, like from Amazon or whatever, is a little bit, actually a little bit less, which has never made sense to me because, you know, the publisher has to print the book and ship the book. And so why wouldn't something electronic royalty be greater? But I'm not really, I'm not really sure. Then what the words that you hear a lot are advances and royalties. So an advance is basically a bet that the publisher makes. They're going to bet they can decide how many copies you're going to sell. Mm-hmm. So let's say if you if they think you're going to sell 10,000 copies, in theory they would give you a 30 to $40,000 advance because they're betting you're going to you're going to make 3 to $4 a book, right? And then you're once you earn out your advance, you get something called royalties and those come to you twice a year. So some writers like to take big advances and then they never earn them out. And some writers like to take more modest advances because they like to get ro- keep getting royalties. Huh, interesting. I yeah. did not know that. Yes. Our guest today has also been in this book business for a very long time. Who do we have here with us today? We have Jennifer Weiner, the number one New York Times bestselling author of 21 books, including The Summer Place, That Summer, Big Summer, Mrs. Everything, In Her Shoes, Good in Bed, and a memoir and essays, Hungry Heart. She has appeared on many national television programs, including Today and Good Morning America, and her work has been published in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, among other newspapers and magazines. Jen lives with her family in Philadelphia. Visit her online at jenniferweiner.com. Hello. Hello, Hello, my friend. It's like having family on today, I know. I I know. Jen and I have been friends a long time. We've done a lot of different events together. Okay, I'm going to get started. Jen, Good in Bed came out in 2000. Is that 2001. right? 2001. 2001. Yes, I'm sorry. Tim has this backwards. Good in Bed came out in 2001. The Beach Club came out in 2000. We've been on the scene for over 20 years. What for you has been the biggest change in publishing? Wow. 
I was looking at the bestseller list the other day and I was thinking it's never, ever been easy to break into that list. It sort of seems like it's the same people in and out, year after year, world without end, amen. But looking at the list now, it it sort of seems to me like it's harder than it's ever been to kind of break through as a debut author. Like if you don't get picked by Reese, if you don't get picked by Oprah, if you don't get picked by Jenna, or if you don't get picked by TikTok, you're kind of screwed. And I, I feel, I mean, I hate to be that person like who drives around the neighborhood and points at all the CVSs and says, that used to be a movie theater. That used to be a bowling alley. It used to be fun. It used to be great. You know, like that sort of everything was better 20 years ago. But it seems to me, I mean, I know for sure that that advances were bigger, that publishers would, like you said, take a bet on a debut author just because they like fell in love with a book and thought it would do well. Now, it really, really seems that like, if you're not one of those like lucky lottery winners, it's very, very hard to break through the noise. Hmm. I also wonder, I'm going off script here. I'm, you I'm, do it. I wonder about novels like Crawdads and, about, and, and Lessons in Chemistry, books that for whatever reason have phenomenal success. And do you think, which is what I think is that people, it just sort of catches on fire and then it becomes like the thing to do. Like we're all going to read this book. I think ultimately the only thing that that sells a book is word of mouth. I think it's people say, you have to read this. I love this. They they see something of themselves in it or something that evokes an emotion or a memory. And and they're like, I love this book. And they're sort of pressing it into other people's hands. And, and that's why... But but yeah, I mean, I do think there is a tipping point where it's sort of like, if you haven't read Where the Crawdad's saying, like, what's wrong? Are you right. living under a rock? You know? <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting as a reader to hear you talk about that. Okay, what, we love origin stories here on the show. So can you walk us through your journey into writing Good and Bad and then your last oh, 20 years here in the business? Yes. Okay, so I, I whether this is like a superhero origin story or a villain origin story, I will leave it to you to determine. <laughs> I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I loved books. I loved reading. I was like a super nerdy kid with no social skills and I just had books to keep me company. And I I read all the way through elementary school and junior high and high school. I went off to college. I was an English major, obviously, because that was the major where you got to read all the books. I graduated in 1991. There was a recession. And what I discovered is after a cheerful and thorough perusal of the classified ads, nobody is hiring debut novelists. Like <laughs> nobody is saying, you know, wanted aspiring novelist. I will pay you $30,000 a year while you go live in an attic in Paris and write, you know, write your first novel. So I had to find a job and I'm like, okay, what are the jobs where you get paid to write stuff? And I had narrowed it down to advertising or journalism. And I decided I did not want to go into advertising because, you know, I was a very like, you know, righteous 21 year old. and I didn't want to sell products to people. And I also... I just had this nightmare that I would end up on like the tampon campaign and like my entire professional life would be devoted to coming up with synonyms for the word absorbent. And I just want to do that. Fast forward. This is, this is a true story. I love the story. Five or six years into my career, my agent calls me and she's like, 
I got this proposal. I think I know what you're going to say, but I want to run it by you. And I'm like, okay. And she's like, well, we got an invitation from a feminine hygiene brand to be their campus ambassador. And I'm like, what did that mean? Would I have to dress up as a giant tampon? And she's like, I don't think so. And I'm like, could I dress as a giant tampon? And she's like, yeah, okay, we're, we're not doing this. I'm just going to tell them no. And I'm like, well, it is a lot to take in. I really <laughs> wish we could Google <laughs> Jen Weiner and it would just be like this giant, giant <laughs> ad in the it. 90s. <laughs> I should do it. I really should have, I, I should have gone for it, man. I should have, I should have taken those OBs and, and gone across the country proselytizing. <laughs> but anyhow, so I, I decided on journalism and I also had a professor. John McPhee, who taught nonfiction writing, and he sort of said, go find a job at a small newspaper in a part of the country where you've never lived, and you will learn to write a lot and write on deadline, and you will learn to work with editors, and you will learn to pay attention to details, all of which are skills in a novelist's toolbox. So off I went to central Pennsylvania I worked for about three years at a small paper in State College. Then I got hired at a medium-sized paper in Lexington, Kentucky. I like to tell people that there are Jews in Lexington. I dated <laughs> them both. <laughs> yeah. And, and then I got hired by the Philadelphia Inquirer. And I came to Philadelphia in 1994 and I loved my job. I was a feature writer. So I got to like cover all the fun stuff, you know, like WrestleMania and the Pillsbury Bake Off and the presidential inauguration. I was having a ball, you know, I was like in my twenties, I was like boffing around. And then I got my heart broken. A couple of things happened in like when I was like 27, 28, I, I had been going out with this guy for a couple of years. You know, I thought he was the one and he did not think he was the one. And yeah, it was this sort of tragic breakup where I, I think it's like a, the kind of thing like you only go through it once. Like it's like your first love and your heart is so broken. And unfortunately for me, this happened the year that Titanic came out. So I just have very vivid memories of driving and crying and singing my heart will go on. Yeah. <laughs> very bad. And the other thing that happened was my mom came out of the closet fell in love with a woman, a younger woman. And, you know, in, in classic lesbian fashion, they had two dates and moved in together. And my mom didn't tell any of us what was going on. There's four kids in my family. So we were all in our 20s, except for my brother, Joe, who was a teenager and in college. And he came home to do his laundry and called me and is like, there's a woman living in the house. And I'm like, that's interesting. And I call my mom and I'm like, Fran, What's going on here? And and she's like, nothing, nothing's going on. And I'm like, well, you know, Joe says there's like, you know, other shoes and and clothing and 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 my mom's like, oh yeah, that that's my swing coach. She's staying for a little I'm while. Just, oh my god, I'm deceased. That is hilarious. Yeah, this sounds like a premise for a novel. Not it's your my life. swing coach. <laughs> It's my swim coach to which I reply, Fran, it is not an Olympic year. What is going on? <laughs> and then she's just like, okay, I met this woman. She's the aquatics director at the West Hertford JCC. We're in love and we're living together. Bye. Like, oh my gosh. So, right. Okay. So here I am. I'm, I'm completely gutted by this breakup. And my mom is off having like super adventurous sex. So I'm like, what is a girl to do? 
And at this point, I had been writing fiction in my spare time ever since I finished college. I had sold a couple of short stories to like 17 and to Redbook. I had started novels that didn't go anywhere. I was writing, writing, writing all the time. And I finally said like, okay, what do I know how to do to get myself feeling better? I know how to tell a story. And I said, I'm going to tell a story just for my own like edification and to get me out of this like heartache about a girl like me and a guy like loosely, loosely modeled on my ex and the girl's mom comes out and her dad's kind of abandoned the family. It's very autobiographical in the way of many first novels. And that was good in bed. And that, you know, then I, I found an agent. I went and I got a book called A Writer's Guide to Literary Agents because there was no internet. You would just like send query letters to these people and hope they hadn't like died in the interim between the book getting published, querying them, right? Yeah. And, you know, just query, 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 rejected, rejected, rejected. Finally found an agent who wanted to work with me. And we revised the book for a couple of months, did really intense revisions. I think it was like 500 pages at one point because I didn't know what I was doing and there was no internet. I couldn't check, you know? Now that's an origin story. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break so we can thank one of our premier sponsors, Nantucket Looms. An island institution since 1968, Nantucket Looms is your destination for island style. Known around the world for their hand-woven textiles created on site, signature soaps, and iconic boat neck sweaters. Looking to capture the feeling of Nantucket in your home? Nantucket Looms interiors create spaces with a contemporary coastal aesthetic, featuring the island's traditional crafts and natural color palette. To learn more, go to NantucketLoomsInteriors.com or shop their online store at NantucketLooms.com where you can receive 15% off your order with code BOOKS15. Nantucket Looms, where every thread tells a story of craftsmanship, tradition, and community. The Looms may be one of my favorite stores on this island because I get every wedding gift. I feel like housewarming gift. Yeah. And you even have put many of items in your books that live at Nantucket Looms. So one of the funniest stories, of course, is when I was creating the Hotel Nantucket and I wanted to have this like sumptuous like cashmere throw in each of the rooms. So I invented the hydrangea blue cashmere throw that is in every room at the Nantucket Hotel and at the Hotel Nantucket. And I believe the housekeeping manager says, well, you know, these are going to disappear. <laughs> <laughs> and I messaged Nantucket Looms. I said, just so you are aware, I have like a fictional blanket in the Hotel Nantucket. And then they wove the blanket. And then there was a waiting list. And then forever. there was a and waiting list. And that is list. still on the website, as well as the soaps that you love and love so many different things. Soap. Yes. Thank you so much, Nantucket Looms. Thank you, Looms. Keep going, because I want to know what happens next. Okay, so I I really wanted to sell the book by the time I was 30, and I missed it by six weeks. I sold it six weeks after my 30th birthday in 2000. Okay. And my mom knew I was writing a book. I, I told two people. I told my best friend, and I told my mom, because the reporter who works on a novel and never publishes it is a cliche, right? Like, the joke is, if you walk through any big newsroom and say to any reporter, how's the novel? They'll be like, oh, it's coming right along. Just did another polish, you know? I did not want to be that person. So I just didn't tell anyone what I was doing, except my mom. And every time I would say anything about the novel, my mother would say, oh, yes, the novel. Like, you know, like <laughs> she was ready for the fainting couch. You know, so I, I get an agent, I get a publishing deal. 
the chestnut in publishing is that the happiest day of a writer's life is when you get to go home and tell mom and dad that someone's publishing your book, right? And and I'm sure that this is true for everyone whose first book is not called Good in Bed. Hilarious. Oh my God. Because <laughs> I had to go and tell Fran, you know, because I was like, you know, hey, remember the novel? Oh, yes, the novel. I said, well, you know, this inference of Simon and Schuster, which was then Pocket Books and is now Atria, they just gave me a two-book deal and they're going to publish it. And my mom is so happy and she's so proud and she's like giving me this big hug and her eyes are full of tears. And then she sort of pulls back and says, what's this novel called? And I'm like, shit. <laughs> and I'm like, good in bed? She's like, what was that? I'm like, good in bed? And she says, good and bad? <laughs> no, not that. Not that. No. Yeah. So, you know. And I, I gave it to her and I explained and I said, like, there's a, there's a gay mom in this book. And I, I, I did not write this book to hurt you. I did not write this book to embarrass you. If there's anything you want me to change, I will change it. So I give her the manuscript and I have to sit there and listen to the pages flipping and flipping. And every once in a while, she would just scream, Jenny, God damn it. And I knew that she had like, like hit a step C or something like that. And I said, I would change anything except the name of the women's softball team, which is nine women out. Like, you can't make me change that. (laughs) And she was fine with it. She was just like, well, I'm just going to tell everyone it's fiction. And I'm like, you do that, Fran. That'll that'll work. And she did. Like, she spent 20 years, people had asked her. And she'd be like, oh, you know, Jenny, it's fiction. She made it all up. That's excellent. I wouldn't have no way of knowing this. How did it do? Did you hit the bestseller list as a debut novel? The Times bestseller list back in the day, there was the list that they printed, which was 15 books. And right. then there was the extended list, the extended list. Good in Bed made the extended list for two weeks. That's amazing. And I was beyond. I mean, I think a lot of people just picked it up because of the title and the cover and because maybe there were pictures. They weren't sure. It went on to do really, really well in paperback. Like yeah. that was sort of where it found its feet. But yeah, it it made the list, which, like I said, I mean, I think it's just such a a rare and wonderful thing. And and I felt so lucky and and just astonished because I knew what happens with most first novels, which is they don't do very well and you don't get a chance to write a second one. And so All I wanted with that first book, I mean, I wanted the thing every writer wants, which is to walk into a bookstore and see her book, see her name and and just have that experience. And I just wanted it to do well enough that like they didn't feel like they'd made a bad bargain with this two book deal. Okay. And so then in in her shoes comes out. I read uh, Get Fed in paperback, I think. I must have. But yes. for the listener, just so you know, so my first novel, I did not hit the, I hit the extended list, I think with my sixth novel and did not hit the printing list until my seventh novel. So hitting it in your first try is extraordinary. Then in your shoot, you follow it up with In Her Shoes. So can you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. that? About that, Right. So In Her Shoes was my, my second novel. It was, I, I knew I wanted to write a sister story. I have a sister who is very close in age to me and very different than I am. And I wanted to write a story about sisters. And so this is when the term chiclet was just starting to be thrown around. Like, I think they were still, they were talking, you know, like women's fiction, which has always been a category, commercial fiction, which has always been a category. But chiclet, it was just, that, that was just a term starting to come into vogue. And I, 
I think that like, it's very hard for established writers. And Ellen, tell me if you agree with this, but like once you sort of have like a brand and a name and an audience and the audience has expectations, it's hard not to feel kind of locked in by those things, like a little bit constrained. Like I have to give them what they want. I have to make it as good as the last one. I have to figure out exactly what they liked about the last one. And I have to make sure to give it to them again. And I wrote in her shoes sort of, I, I wrote a lot of it before Good and Bad even came out, which was smart. My my agent said, get as much of the second one done before the first one comes out because like things can get very noisy after that. And and that is what happened. Things did get very noisy. And then I had a baby and they got even noisier. But, right. you know, it, it was just, I think there's a kind of freedom that you have early in your career, sort of before you're like a brand. Like I wasn't a brand yet and I could kind of do whatever I wanted. And so I... I wrote this book about sisters. It got optioned for a movie, you know, which I, of course, was just like, this will never happen. Because again, I knew most books that get optioned, they never get made. So my brother, Jake, who is a producer in Hollywood and was helping me sort of set this project up, he's like, okay, you know, this studio's optioned it. I'm like, yeah, great, whatever. And then he tells me they've gotten this incredible woman to adapt the thing and that Curtis Hansen wants to direct it. And I'm like, I'm still just like, this is never going to happen. And then he's like, Cameron Diaz is attached. And I'm like, Cameron Diaz is playing a Jewish girl? Like, okay, I, I'm happy to hear that. I know a lot of Jewish guys would be too. <laughs> and I, I really, I just never, ever, ever thought that it was going to be real until like the first day of principal photography. And then I'm just like, okay, maybe this is actually happening. You know, I just always try to be like, very realistic about it. And like every time I'm at a reading and somebody's like, well, are any of your other books going to be movies or TV shows? I'm just like, you know, some of them have been optioned, but I have found for my own sanity and mental health, like the less I think about that stuff, the happier I am because you can't control it and you just don't know. You don't know what's going to happen. I mean, and I think you would say the same thing. That's not your job. Like your job is to write the book. Precisely. Yeah. So yeah. The Breakaway is your latest novel. It just came out about yes. a month ago. We loved it. Uh-huh. It Love. starts Thank with you. Abby. She's at a bachelorette party and she's feeling a little less accomplished than everyone else around her. So you two are so successful. I'm so honored to be talking to you both. Was there a time that either of you felt like Abby? And then do you have any advice for people who are listening that maybe feel that way? I mean, my first job out of college. So we graduated the same year. So I graduated in 1991. I moved to New York City. I got a job working for in publishing for St. Martin's Press. Is anyone from St. Martin's Press going to listen to this? Maybe. <laughs> I worked for the head of the company. I don't even know if that gentleman is still alive. He was quite a force in publishing at the time. I was his assistant and I hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it. I was mostly, the problem was mostly that I was bored. They didn't give me enough to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm good with anything. I can work as hard as you want. But if I'm sitting there bored, then I'm absolutely miserable. So that was the biggest problem. And I lasted nine months and then I realized, you know, I, I wanted to be a writer and not an editor or anything having to do with the other side of the business. So I quit and I got into teaching because I really, I mean, teaching was sort of closer to what I loved, but also it had, you know, you get, you have a lot of time off. And you, so I, what I really wanted <laughs> was the summer off so that I could start writing. Jen, what about you? I remember my first newspaper job, I was making $16,000 a year. 
And I was the education reporter. So I was covering five local school districts. And one of my jobs was to type the school lunch menus. So every Monday, I'm sitting there typing hot dog in bun, fruit cup, <laughs> your choice, skin or chocolate milk. And I had classmates who were writing for Saturday Night Live or interning at Vanity Fair or like, I, I remember like, one of my classmates, like Cosmopolitan Magazine, did like a roundup of like young working women. And this woman I'd graduated with had like a fancy job at a fancy museum and she was making $60,000 a year. I was oh like, gosh. are you kidding me? And I, I just felt like I am never going to get ahead. I'm never going to be making any money. I'm just going to be grinding and grinding and it's never going to happen. And I'm already falling behind. And, you know, just like the ridiculous, like grandiose things you think when you're 23. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a very universal thing, maybe particularly for young women is just feeling like everyone got handed the guidebook and everyone has it more figured out than you. And that was sort of what I was trying to capture with, with Abby, who has not, not decided on a career, is not all in with the guy that she's been seeing and just is, is, you know, trying to find her purpose, basically. Yeah. So in the novel, which I absolutely loved, listener, go get the breakaway. I loved it. Two that I'm thinking of, mother-daughter relationships, right? So Abby's relationship with her mother is kind of problematic. And then there's another mother-daughter yeah. relationship that also has its issues. Revisiting Fran, the story you told about her was absolutely <laughs> one of my favorites and I've, I've known you a while and I haven't heard that one. Fran passed away three years ago, two years ago? Two years two ago. Two years yeah, ago. 2020, 2021. And your novel, Mrs. Everything, which is another one of my favorites by your, was an ode to her in many ways. Can you talk about how losing your mom has sort of manifested itself in your work? Yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting when you become a mother yourself how your attitude towards your own mom changes. And for me, I think as soon as I had one baby and was just so overwhelmed and just so like wrapped with insecurity. And like at that point, when my mom was the age I was when I had Lucy, she had three kids, you know, and like bam, 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 and was just like, you know, I couldn't fault her for anything anymore, you know, and I, I mean, my mom used to describe her parenting style as benign neglect. Like she, <laughs> and and it was a different time. The 70s and the 80s. Of like, course, Nobody yeah. wore bicycle helmets and nobody wore seatbelts. And I had a lot of freedom and a lot of responsibilities. I mean, I remember my mom being in like a really big hurry for me to get my driver's license so I could start driving the carpools and like getting my siblings where they needed to be. I loved my mom. And I think like when I got to see her be a grandmother, I think like that was, you know, that that was another big like turning point for me because I think like there's something so pure about that relationship where parents have to discipline and parents have to guide and parents have to punish and they have to keep the rules in place. And grandparents don't have to do any of that. They just have to like love the kids and, and think they're fantastic. And Fran loved my daughters and thought they were fantastic and taught them both how to swim and taught them how to ride their bikes. You know, I think that the mother-daughter relationships are always inflected by the culture. And 
I was really lucky in Fran. My mom was a larger woman, lived in a larger body her whole life and was active and happy and, you know, rode her bike and played tennis and hiked and did everything and didn't diet and didn't like do the thing of like stand in front of the mirror and like pinch herself and or say things like, oh, I was so naughty last night. I I can't eat anything today or I've got to work that off on the treadmill or whatever. Like she lived happily in her body and modeled that for me which I feel so incredibly lucky about because I know so many women did not get that message from their moms. And that was what I wanted to sort of talk about with Abby. I mean, Abby and Eileen is a little bit of like the photographic negative of me and Fran. Okay. You know, because Abby has a mother who judges her, who kind of scrutinizes every mouthful of food that Abby eats, who really, really, really is invested in Abby looking a certain way. And we learn later in the book that Eileen has reasons for this and that she herself is sort of a victim of the diet culture that she's now perpetuating. But sometimes when I write about mothers and daughters, I I use what I had with my mom as an example. And sometimes I'm like, what is what is the exact opposite of this? Because that's interesting too. Mm -hmm. Another real component of the breakaway is the biking and exercising. You love to bike. So that's a little bit autobiographical as well. When you're biking, do you zone out or are you riding? Like, has there been plot points in your, (laughs) like, or are you, are you, what are you doing when you're biking? Yeah. Okay. So I mean, you know, the first thing obviously is you're trying not to get hit by cars, like in Philadelphia. <laughs> Very important. That is, that is a bit. That is a big thing. Um. But yeah. I mean, and Ellen, you run or, or yes, you jog. Or I do my whatever. very slow <laughs> jogging. I but I'm, I also jogging. I also do the pillow. So I'm a Peloton person. But yes, I don't. Yeah. I generally stay off. I I know how to ride a bike, obviously, but I generally <laughs> stay off. I have a bike. I, I own a bike. Just recently, I biked to Sankity Lighthouse. And then you know oh. how the saying, it's like riding a bike? Yeah. That is not a true statement oh, because okay. I hadn't no. been on one for a while. And I was no. like, I look ridiculous. No. <laughs> no. It's, it's not easy. It's a skill. It really is. But I mean, I find that like repetitive motion, whether it's walking or slow running or riding my bike or swimming, sort of like it turns off the chatter in the front of my brain. So like the back of my brain can like work out plot points. So yeah, I am thinking about the story and like the characters and who they are, where they're going, what they're going to do next. So it is, you know, it's helpful. I mean, exercise is, is important for like my my mental health as well as my physical health, but it's important for my job too. Yeah, well, Ellen, you always say it sets you up for success in your scheduling. But yeah. did you write when you're jogging? Like in your book. When I'm like, jogging, I can do, I put notes on my phone all the time, all the time. I think it's scientifically proven that when you're in motion, actually your creative thinking is increased. Hmm. Um, when I'm on the Peloton, I'm sweating too hard to do do a thing. But I, I am always, I'm always thinking. And I think it really does help. I agree. Yeah. yeah I think, that would, that would be some advice. I mean, you know, I, when Tim, when you were asking about like, when you were in that hopeless place and you feel like, you know, stuck, I think, I always think like getting out and moving helps anything that's, yeah. that's going on, you know? And I, I think also just knowing that like every single person has been there, you know, there was an article in the New York Times about like famous authors and rejections that like it ran when I was in my 20s. I don't know where I was living, but I like cut it out of the paper and put it on my bulletin board. And it was really encouraging to know that like, 
Joyce Carol Oates got rejected and, you know, all of John McBee got rejected. All of these writers who I had looked up to, like everybody, everyone gets shot down at some point. Yeah. And now a short break to thank our sponsor, Bar Yoshi. Bar Yoshi is Nantucket's award-winning place for innovative Japanese and Asian-inspired cuisine, sake, cocktails, and more, with indoor and outdoor seating offering direct waterfront views of the marina from its old South Wharf location. And the newest spot from Bar Yoshi team, Obar, located directly across the wharf, is a seaside retreat offering an all-day raw bar menu with seasonal and classic cocktails. Bring Bar Yoshi home with takeout options and party platters, or book catering for your next party or special event with Van Yoshi. For more information, visit bar-yoshi.com. Bar Yoshi is one of my favorite restaurants, mostly because the ambiance, you feel like you're in Europe. Yes, I love it. It's right on the water. The design is so spare and clean and super chic. I have not been to Obar. My son, Maxwell, goes I think I'll hate to say this, people almost every single day, he loves Obar. Oh, wow. I did not know that. What I love about it is it's the perfect place for a date night at night. Yes. And also brunch is really spectacular. I love all the food. I mean, sushi is one of my favorite foods. Out yeah. There. And they also have, they have ramen and they have stir fry. They have fried rice. Absolutely delicious. I love Bar Yoshi. They're craft cocktails too. Don't miss Bar Yoshi. Do not sleep on it, people. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So, Jen, you and I are on a text thread with some other very popular writers. Do you know how many messages I get on the daily that's like, Tim, tell me who's in that well, text thread? Well, they know because they've already heard they've already heard the Jody, mm-hmm. the Jody Pico. So they know Jody's mm-hmm. on it. So Jody and Jen mm-hmm. are on are on it, and yes. I are on it with two other Which we're not saying. We're not saying that people are <laughs> enormously sex- successful writers. And we talk about all things publishing and we're in a unique perspective to understand each other's quandaries, etc. Recently, and I'm I'm going to be very delicate when I say this, recently, we were discussing a writer who's not in our group, and a discussion Mm -hmm. came up between commercial fiction and literary fiction, and you already sort of talked Mm -hmm. about the chiclet, and you have been very outspoken about, you know, women's fiction and the, you know, versus fiction written by men. Can you talk a little bit about how things are going, how things have changed? Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's so funny. It's like I, every once in a while, I'll be talking to my husband and I'll just, you know, like I, I'm a soldier in the chiclet wars of, of 09 to up to 2013. I mean, it was a real moment. I think a real moment of reckoning in the culture because it was a conversation about how women's books were described, how they were sold, how they were packaged, how they were reviewed or not reviewed. You know, where I had been noticing for years, like, for example, the New York Times would publish review roundups of science fiction, horror fiction, mysteries, thrillers, like every kind of genre book you could imagine except romance. They would not touch romance except once a year on Valentine's Day they would find some like hundred year old literary professor and like exhume this guy and give him 1200 words to basically make fun of, of Fabio on the covers and talk about how silly these books all were. And, you know, I started paying attention to like book reviews and I was noticing like, geez, you know, they reviewed John Grisham and he's really popular and they review Stephen King and he's sure popular, but they're not reviewing Jody Picot. And isn't that interesting? And I wonder what that's about. And 
you know, there was a lot of pushback and a lot of people saying, you know, Jennifer Weiner is just jealous or your book's stuck and that's why nobody reviews them. But luckily, there's this organization called VITA, which is an organization of women in the arts, and they actually started counting. They looked at big newspapers like the Times. They looked at magazines like Harper's and the Atlantic and the New Republic, and they started counting how many books by women versus books by men were being reviewed, how many reviews were written by women versus reviews written by men. And they did pie charts. And I remember, you know, feeling just incredibly affirmed because I'm like, I told you there was a problem because I remember the first year they did their count, you know, the times was like 60-40, which was definitely on the better side of things. And it went all the way to like the New Republic, which the first year Vita counted had reviewed 17 books by men and one book by one. And yeah, and everybody was like, this is shocking. And I'm like, well, it's not shocking if you've been paying attention. But that I think was the the first time that editors really were called to account. And they either had to say, yes, this is a problem and we're going to try to do better or no, there's no problem here. We're just reviewing the best books and the cream rises to the top and and who cares if all the cream is male, you know, stuff like that. I think things have gotten better because I think that gone are the days when a magazine could review 17 books by men and one book by a woman and no one would notice and no one would say anything. I agree, yeah. Yes, now people notice and they will say something. And the thing that I've really noticed is like the Times has gotten better about reviewing books like mine, books like yours, books like Jody's, and they cover romance now and they do it in a respectful way. The woman who does the reviews is a romance writer herself who knows the genre in and out and writes really thoughtful, interesting pieces when she's talking about these books. And I mean, I I always felt that like, when you ignore books for women, quote unquote, you're telling women that they don't matter as readers, that their stories don't matter as much, that the things they care about aren't that important. And, you know, that's just, that is, that is not okay. Not okay. Also, I'd love to see a pie chart of how, I mean, women are more readers than, than men. That is, I think, a statistic out there yes, for sure. Women, women, yes, by, we are, we are, far and away vastly the consumers of fiction. You know, men just for whatever reason are much more likely to read nonfiction than they are to pick up a novel. And so if a novel becomes a bestseller, you can bet that it's women that put it over the top. I think I have, they, my, my wonderful publisher, Little Brown, does, you know, all kinds of demographics. My readership is 7%. It is went up. Uh, male. Men. Male. Yeah. I'm going to, I've increased that to 10%. The you think so? Because you're signing lines. There's been a lot <laughs> there of There have been, I do have dudes. I mean, I do have dudes, but, and some of them are like really ardent fans. 100%. But it's not the majority. So I started this episode with Ellen and I wanted some juicy book business gossip. So Jen, do you have anything for me? I mean, I think the the headline is this lawsuit about AI and about sort of feeding writers' books into these large language model machines, you know, and and basically training them to spit out simulacra of books like ours. I, I think that is the final frontier, you know, that's, that's what's next. 
I, gosh, I do have some gossip, but I don't think it's anything I, I would care to share. With like, <laughs> to wait. Yeah, we'll, we'll stop yes, the recording we'll, we'll and then. Just, <laughs> tell me after. Yeah, I will. I'm um, dying laughing. Yeah, wow. Well, if anything we're juicy still- comes up, I mean, you know, because there have been scandals since we've had our, we've had our text thread for a while. I think we've had it for yeah. three, four, four years. Yeah, I, believe. The, I mean, we, 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 we discuss it. Thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, then tell me your worst book tour story. Do you have one of those? <laughs> That's juicy. Wow. Oh, that, that is juicy. Okay. Well, I will, I will tell you something that happened on this most recent tour. So I'm, I'm in the signing line and this woman comes up to me. She does not look familiar at all. And she's telling me, she's like, do you remember me? Oh, and no. I'm like, I do not. Um, she's like, I was your, I was your neighbor. Yeah. It's bad. I was your neighbor. I lived on Case Circle and you lived on Harvest Hill Road. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. And, you know, like she's telling me the names of her daughters and they were a little younger than me. And one of them was was my brother Jake's first girlfriend. And, you know, I'm like, oh, my God, that's great. You know, I'm like, you know, Jake's in LA and he's married. He's got kids. He produces movies, blah, blah, blah. Where's Julie? And she says, in heaven. Oh, no. And I'm right. And I'm, I'm like, where do I go with that? I'm like, I'm so sorry. Like, I had no idea. Like, oh my God, I terrible. <laughs> but yes, I mean, the people Awkward. come through the line and just like drop the truth bombs on you. And, you know, and I, every once in a while, Ellen, this must happen to you. Like, I get a crier, like yeah. somebody who just like gets to the front of the line and they are so overcome that they are like, Crying, and I'm like, I am no big deal. Like, That's please, exactly I what so I say. Worth this. I know. And if you don't believe me, I could, I could get my teenager on the phone, and she would tell you <laughs> how little of a deal I am, yeah. how little I matter, and yeah. yeah. But I mean, God, book tour horror stories. You know, locked <laughs> luggage, told things. I yes, I've had a you know an, an old boyfriend or two creep out of the, the woodwork, and That's and the so worst. And, Ellen has uh, one yeah. coming this week, and I'm so excited. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> I consider him. Have you met this person? Well, no, he orders the books every year, and, and he, he always might be listening to the podcast. So let's be <laughs> okay. Oh no, I love discreet. I love him. Yeah, it's we so funny. But I can't we wait to meet him. We love a, a committed reader. No, I know exactly. it's all good. I I all consider good. a tour, like a signing line successful when I see zero people from my past. <laughs> I just, it's just so, okay. And Jen, you understand this, right? Because you're going along and you need to give each person the exact same amount of individual attention, which is what I like to do. Because if I'm ever, if I ever, I've said this before, maybe if I ever meet Bruce Springsteen, I want his undivided attention for 20 seconds or whatever. Just me. Of course. And I don't want to be thinking, oh my God, three people behind you is, you know, my old third grade teacher. I love yeah. I love all my teachers. That probably wasn't a good example, but you know what I mean. More like you know somebody mm-hmm. that I used to know. It's right. very somebody distracting. Going to be a different level of interest. Yeah, your neighbor that you don't remember. It's very distracting <laughs> to have people you know come through the come through the line. Yeah. I find yes, but you know, like author escort. Do you do you still work with author escorts? I never still, ever like. I never have. I've oh I always okay, so I always go it alone. Right. That's smart because author escorts are sometimes they're great. Okay. So these are people who like are super readers. They know the bookstores. They know the town. They'll take you around. They sign stock. 
Every once in a while, though, there you get a you get a weird one. And I had one who decided that an okay thing to do would be to start adjusting my bra straps oh, while on. I was signing. Oh no! I, hand to God, and I mean, I'm sure they weren't where they should have been. I I I give this woman credit for like noticing that there was a problem, but the steps she took to address it were inappropriate. <laughs> and I, I had to I had to basically say like, please, no hands, you know, just just keep your hands. Over my clothing. Do you have that in your contract now? Okay. When you go on author divorce, no touching in my rider. You know, like no. So okay, I'm gonna that's s- extra. That's yeah. pretty funny. Okay, we've both been at this a while, and I want to talk about professional mm-hmm. jealousy. So mm-hmm. huh, I don't even know how to say it without pissing anybody off. But you, you know, you and I have been at this a long time. Are there people? I have a couple writers that I am secretly professionally jealous of. For whatever reason, and it could be no reason. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely not going to say who they are. But do you mm-hmm. experience this? And then how do you deal with it? Yes, I, I have had several nemeses over the years. They do not know who they are. I would I would never name them. I mean, part of me thinks like it's a useful thing. Like it's good to have something that like lights a fire under you. But the thing that is, I mean, there's always going to be somebody getting something that you did not get. Like. Personally, I don't think I'm ever going to be picked by Reese. I, I just do not see that happening. And so, like, can I really be jealous of somebody who did get picked by Reese? Like, well, maybe not so much. Like, I try to think about the, the pieces of it that I can control. And ultimately, that just comes down to the story that I'm telling. And maybe that story is not going to be for everyone, you know? Like, and, and I, I feel, I, I always try to like reframe it and just be like, how many people did I start with that are still writing and are still publishing and are still getting on the bestseller list or, or even not getting on the bestseller list, but just publishing consistently? And I mean, yeah, some of the people that were debuting with me in 2001 are still working and still writing and still publishing, but a lot of them aren't. Right. And Whenever I get jealous of somebody or, you know, why is, you know, why doesn't Jenna pick my book or why doesn't the book of the month club pick my book or whatever? It's like, I just have to think like, I'm sure there are a lot of people looking at me and thinking, why don't I have what she has? Why didn't it work out that way for me? And just, I really feel lucky. And especially like after a book tour where you get to hear from people like, your book helped me. It helped me through a hard time or it kept me entertained or it, it showed me that, you know, there was light at the end of the tunnel or that maybe it's okay that I'm never going to be smaller than a size 16. You know, like I think that's my purpose. Like that's what I'm here to do. And I have to let that be enough. And it's hard sometimes. It is, but I, I always I, like. What do you do? How do you? How do you deal? I, I think I. I would like to say. I mean, you know, I just. Compl- I just complain to myself in my head. Like, oh, oh my goodness, you know. And it. it it's challenging because you don't. Want, it's like a really ugly emotion. Like you don't want to feel jealous in any situation, but professional jealousy right. is particularly difficult because it's who you know. It's what you do with your. It's what you're doing with your life. We're gonna take a quick break so we can thank our sponsor, Read with Jenna. 
Hey, Book Speech and Beyond listeners, we have some exciting news to share with you all. Jenna Bush Hager from Today with Hoda and Jenna and the Read with Jenna Book Club has a brand new podcast series. The podcast is called Read with Jenna, and in each episode, Jenna interviews her favorite authors. Beloved writers like Colleen Hoover, Judy Bloom, Margaret Atwood, and more open up to Jenna about their creative process, their love of books, and what inspired them to share their stories. You can search Read with Jenna to follow now. New episodes release every Thursday. I love Jenna Bushhager. I have such a book crush on her. When she was on our podcast the other month, we I had know. so much fun. Oh my gosh, we had so much fun. She reads very similar to the two of us, right? Yes. So we had a lot of different books that we'd all read. I also love how she engages with authors and champions debut authors. So I can't wait to listen to this podcast for all of those reasons. And I know you love Judy Bloom, so that oh would be... Oh my like- gosh, I definitely... And Margaret Atwood, are you kidding me? Yes. One and- of my very favorites. I'm excited about the Chen Julie Wong episode. There's so many books that we've loved from the Read with Jenna community. So thank you so much, Read with Jenna, and good luck on the podcast. Thank you. And I mean, like the Crawdads book, for example, which which felt like it was going to be on the bestseller list until we died. Right. Right. I mean, every week, there it was, there it was. And I'm like, okay. But the author is, is she's in her 70s, right? I know. Like, okay. And, and the same with Bonnie Garmus, who wrote Lessons in Chemistry, like... These are like, am, am I really going to like hate somebody who's like old enough to be my nana? Like that's, that's bad karma. I have to believe that is bad karma. I'm and I, I, it's hard, but I always want to like support other women. Yeah. Even if their books are going to be on the bestseller list till the, till 2025. Right. Or right. I know you and I and our fun text group also have an interesting relationship with our, so- with social media. And how Bookstagram mm-hmm. and how Bookstagram mm-hmm. um, occasionally, you know, can do can feel like it can derail us. And you know, I certainly have had my own struggles with Bookstagram, which I've like just desperately tried to overcome. It's challenging, though. It really is very challenging. Have you learned anything from social media, like your interactions with re- readers on social media? I w- I'm going to say something, and you guys might not even real- realize this. I can't remember the last time I used the f bomb in a novel, but whenever it was, I heard about it so much that I decided that I was just oh. going to stop saying it in my novels. Wow. And so I do not wow. use the word fuck in my books. <laughs> and but you save it for the podcast. I, I, do, I do not use it and because I hear about it and people just like, there's a segment of my readership that just can't stand it. And I thought, okay, is it so important to me that I can't let it go for one book? So mm-hmm. I use mm-hmm. other words and... Can we get um, one in Swan Song though for the okay, final? But, no, but the funny thing is, so then I said, well, when I when I write the boarding school books, I mean that's going to be full on swearing. I can't wait because anybody yeah, asked me that's city, man. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I, I think the last word in Swan Song should be fun. I really, I'm, I'm just, I'm putting that out in the year. Oh uh, yeah, so it. funny. I but think you deserve it. But okay, that's so a change I made based on social, like yeah. just people mostly. I'm not not going to surprise you. Mostly my Facebook posts, like people get so upset mm-hmm. and so offended. So, you know, I've, I don't use it. I don't, I don't read the comments. Okay. I do not read the comments. I decided a long time ago, like when Good and Bed came out, I would check Amazon every day. I would check the ranking. I would see if there were any new reviews. And if they were good reviews, I'd be happy. And if they were bad reviews, I'd be sad. And then I, at some point I realized like when I die, like if it turns out there's like an actual, like St. Peter scenario, like somebody standing at the gates of heaven deciding if, whether or not I get in. That person is not going to ask me to recite the Amazon reader reviews that Good and Bad got. 
it's not gonna matter. It's, it doesn't matter to anyone but me. And like, boy, if, if I, I mean, yes, I, I'm sure there are readers who object to my language or the sex scenes or like whatever they are going to decide to object to. But like, if that got into my head, I think it would take me like an extra effort to start writing that day. It would take me like a, I, I'd need an extra push because I'd, I'd have those voices in my head and I'd just be thinking, oh my God, I can't, I, I shouldn't talk about that. And I can't write about this. And I don't want to use that word. And I don't want to use that other word. And for me, it's just so much healthier if I just don't look. Like yeah. I will post on Facebook. I will post on Instagram. I, I never go to Goodreads. I don't look at Amazon and I don't read the reader comments. And I have an assistant. And I mean, if she did nothing else for me, but like go through the, the emails and go through the comments and like flag anything that I need to respond to, but like filter it so that I'm not, so that there's a layer between me and whatever people want to tell me. Because that's what social media has done. I, I think authors used to be just like a postage stamp headshot on the back of a book and, you know, a publisher's address. And now I think like Twitter and TikTok and Facebook and all of those things have really democratized, you know, where we're just, you know, we're out there and we're accessible and we're available and people can now, it's a different kind of relationship that social media has made possible, you know, but it's, I always think like, so this, this summer I was scrolling through Instagram and somebody had posted like a beautiful picture of the breakaway, the, the novel, the cover with like a, a, an old fashioned cruiser style bicycle on like a beach. Like it was a beautiful picture, like real, like the lighting and the composition and everything. And like an idiot, I clicked on the post and they gave the book zero out of five stars and said they could barely finish it. And they hated both of the main characters and all of the plot. And I was like ruined for like a day and a half. I was, I had, I had it in my head and it was playing on the loop and I just couldn't make it stop. And I'm like, well, shame on me. Like I know better. I, no matter how pretty the pictures are, I think you're right. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm going to end by asking, I always like to say positive in all situations, but what I <laughs> since this has been such a juicy episode, I want to know both of your least favorite parts of this job as a writer. So I'll start with you, Jen. Okay, so I love writing. I love just like being in my little office, like in my imagination, making things up. And when I'm on book tour, I'm really happy. I like talking to readers. I enjoy public speaking. I like having those interactions. But I find that turn going from being like a hermit, basically, to putting on the clothes and putting on the makeup and putting on the shoes that hurt and just being a saleswoman, because that's what you are. You're out there selling your books and you're selling yourself kind of because it's, it's this book and the next book and the backlist and all the books that will come. That is a hard transition. It's hard to make the turn from writer to salesperson. And then it's hard to turn back. It's hard to come home off of a book tour with all that noise and all that buzz and all those people. And, and then just go like sit in your office and, and write again. That's what I find to be the hard part. 
most writers are introverts, though, so I totally get that. Well, Jen and I are not. We're fine in public. (laughs) That's one good thing. But introverts is just you get your energy. You recharge by being by yourself. Is that true for you? I would say that I would. That's true for me. Uh, yeah, I, I'm nourished being by myself. Yeah, I do not get energy. I do not. I can. I I do love book tour, and you know, meeting my readers. But I'm nourished by being by myself. Yes. What, the, what's, what's your least favorite part? Oh, the yeah. thing I like the least is the pressure. So you know, I'm on a book a year contract for the last 23 years, and my job, as you know, is to write exactly the same thing completely differently every yeah. year. And the pressure of doing that, which is, you do, which you do brilliantly. Like, thank you. I, I think I think you are a unicorn in terms of your ability to give, to deliver the familiar thing that the reader wants, and also do it totally differently each time. Yeah, very but hard. You're, you're amazing, and they should teach your books in school. And that is why I'm retiring. So I'm writing right now. I'm at the I'm at the mm-hmm. end. I'm at the beginning of the end of my last novel, Swan Song, and. Only today, only this morning, this very morning, we're recording this on the sep- on September 26th. Am I feeling excited? Because I can, I figured out the end. I don't figure out the end until I get to the end. I figured out the end, and I'm like, oh my gosh, now I know what's and I'm, I'm and I'm feeling excited about this book for the very first time. And I started writing it in February. Yeah. So every single day and like a lot of nights up all night. This is gonna suck. I'm gonna end on this like very sour note. It's gonna be terrible. People are gonna hate it because there's so much self doubt when you have that much pressure to perform. And so that is my least favorite thing about the job. Okay, let's end on the positive. What's your most favorite thing? Ellen, you start. So my favorite thing is the readers. And also, I I mean, I absolutely love my readers. I have fantastic readers. And the other thing that I've really loved about this job is showing my three children a good work ethic. Mm. Mm. Proud of that. Jen? Mm -hmm. I, I would say the same thing. I think showing my daughters a woman self-actualized and doing the work that she loves and succeeding at it, I think like that's a gift I've given them. But boy, I I feel so lucky that this is my job because this is what I wanted to be when I grew up, when I was like six years old. Like as soon as I learned that authors were real people, this is what I wanted to do. And I really do feel lucky that I've been able to like to do it this long that there are still people interested in the stories that I want to tell, that all makes me very happy. I see it every day. You both inspire so many people from their entertainment to helping them through so many struggles in their life. And so on behalf of readers everywhere, thank you both. Commercial fiction, literary (laughs) fiction, chick lit, women's fiction, it doesn't matter. I'm just so happy to celebrate you both on this episode because it's been so much fun. Thank you so Thank much you, for Jen. spending you're the amazing. time. You're amazing. You're 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 just you're just so full of life. We love you so much. This so, is great. We love you. We're gonna put out there a picture, and it's gonna be Jen Weiner on Book Speech and Beyond. Ex- exorbitant. Wait, wait. Absorb- ex- absorbent. <laughs> what is the word? Absorbent. 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 Yeah. Right. Oh fuck. <laughs> <laughs> No, Ellen, I really do. I, I just think that would be very fulfilling. <laughs> I know. Well, it thank you very much. secretly for the two of you. Yeah. You guys are very, very welcome. Um, this was a pleasure. And just let me know if there's anything else you need. We will. Thank you. Thank Bye, you, Mary. listeners. Awesome thank day. you. Yep. Bye, Jen. Bye. Bye. Hi, book lovers. Ellen Hildebrand. And Tim Ehrenberg. Here again. Just a few closing notes before you leave. We want to thank our wonderful premier sponsors, Nantucket Book Partners, Marine Home Center, the Nantucket Hotel, Cartelina, and Nantucket Looms for their generous support in the making of this show. 
And we also want to thank our team behind the scenes, beginning with N Magazine. We want to thank our producer, Emmy Duncan, our technical director, Kit Noble, and our editor, Brian Murphy. We hope you'll keep tuning in for more book talks featuring a stellar lineup of special guests all season long. So please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time and happy Happy reading. reading.